Welcome to a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. Because it's a beautiful day. Mm-hmm. A breath of fresh air. Beautiful day. Oh, baby, any day that you're gone away. It's a beautiful day. I'm so happy to have your company. How about letting me know you're here and send me a message, sandy at a breath of fresh I'd love to hear from you. Lots in store for you this hour. We'll meet an artist who has the unusual history of having four records in the British top 10 at once, but all under different names. Any ideas who I could be talking about? What if I play you this? She ain't got It's Love Grows from the band known as Edison Lighthouse. But who was the voice behind Edison Lighthouse? You'll find out very soon. We're also going to check in with one of the darlings of the British pop and disco scene. A singer who had Elton John accompany her way back when he was simply known as Reg. To love from the gorgeous Tina Charles. Tina's got a fabulous story to tell and she's coming up soon. But first to our new music rap and this week there's a reissue of Prince's 17th studio album The Gold Experience. The album was credited at the time to his stage name. Remember that unpronounceable symbol that features on the cover that's also known as the love symbol. It came in at number six on the Billboard 200 and number two on the top R&B albums charts. This was the single that had everyone talking. Girl in the World from Prince and the album The Gold Experience is out for Record Store Day this week. It's the first time the complete album's going to be reissued following the legal battle over that song. Meanwhile, Fleetwood Mac's Christine McVie has her first ever compilation of solo material out this week. It's a reworking of the album which includes a new orchestral version of the title track, her rumours ballad Songbird. also features old solo tracks from Steve Winwood and Eric Clapton. It was produced by Beatles colleague Glyn Johns. This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. My next guest is someone you've likely never heard of. He's a young new talent who holds the distinction of being the first Latin American ever to be signed to a blues record label. He's just released his second album, and I'm sure he's a name you're going to be hearing lots more about in the future. 
Jose Ramirez, great to meet you. Love the new album. Thank you, Sandy. Thanks for the support. Thanks for having me here. You're a relatively new talent. There wouldn't be too many people who'd know a lot about you, so I'm hoping you can fill us in. Tell us about how you've come to be where you are today. Well, I moved to the States about seven years ago from Costa Rica, following my dream to become a blues musician here. And ever since I moved here, things have been great for me. I started my own band. I represented the capital of the United States, uh, Washington, D.C., at the International Blues Challenge in 2020, and we came in second place. I just recently released my second album. I became the first Latin American to ever sign a major like record deal with a, with a blues label in America. How did that deal come about for you? I think it happened because of the International Blues Challenge in 2020. I've been searching way too long trying to find a place to call my own there's no place i'd rather be haven't found that place for me here i come moving all down the line i'm only keep on moving baby Four years old now, Jose, had this dream to become a blues player in the US. What were you doing before you realized that? You know, I was rambling. <laughs> I was rambling. I was just going from place to place. I always knew I was I was gonna do something related to music. My parents were always big music aficionados. I just studied the genre a lot, and that's how it started. I've heard that you've been on stage with some of the legends of today's blues music players, including the great Buddy Guy. How was that? That was a magical moment. I still think about that moment every day. We were touring the U.S. and Buddy Guy was there at his club. You know, he was sitting down at the bar drinking cognac. We were not even like three or four songs in and his assistant came to the stage and told him that Buddy wanted to come up on stage. So we stopped playing and he came up and he stayed on stage with us for close to 30 minutes. He sang, you know, he sang his songs and he asked me to play my guitar and he was like giving me solos. It was very special, it was a very special evening. Say something to you. And I really don't give a damn how you feel You just don't realize You got yourself a good deal She's 19 years old She got white Like a baby child Nothing I can do to please this young woman mm -hmm. I'm just trying to make this young thing feel satisfied The other thing that I think is really special, I'm sure you'd agree On this new album of yours, it's your second album, it's called Major League Blues You actually do a collaboration with the late Jimmy Johnson who is also a friend of mine. Jimmy died not so long ago, unfortunately. He was in his early 90s. Tell us about your experience with him. Wow. Yeah, it was uh, very meaningful. The song, actually, I wrote that song years ago, and I hadn't really planned on including that song on this second album, but I did because it, the situation that came about was the lyrics talk about some of my influences as a blues musician, and I named some of them Muddy Waters and, and Buddy Guy and Lurie Bell. And at some point, I named Jimmy Johns. So when I played the demo for the label, they heard that the lyrics included Jimmy Johnson. They said, well, we might be able to have Jimmy listen to the song. And if he likes it, he might want to be a part of it. So they sent the demo to Jimmy and his wife, Sherry. They listened to it. They liked it. And Jimmy said, I want to, I want to be a part of it. I don't know if I can sing because towards the end, uh, he wasn't really being able to sing that much, but he was excited to be a part of it and to play his guitar. So he did, and it was his last recording before he unfortunately passed away. Oh, 
always had a dream Here is something you can use Let me tell you people Let me give you all the news What's this all about? He said, son, you better listen Before you even play Learn from all the masters Then you'll be on your way I had a dream This is something you can use We had an aura about him, you know, an energy that you could feel the man walking the room and you, you could tell he was good. You kind of feel like they're handing you something, you know, and they're telling you, okay, well, we did what we had to do for the blues. Now it's turn for the younger generation to, to carry it on, you know, and be responsible with it. So it was very meaningful. I'm sure. Jose Ramirez, you are carrying the, the legend of the blues forward. There are not too many young guys that are in that position with you at the moment, although it seems that it's becoming a little bit more popular again for younger people to play the blues. What do you think the future holds? That's a rough question, and I always get into arguments when they ask me that question because it's tricky. I think it's tricky. I think the reason why people believe or think the blues is becoming more popular in the last couple of years, it's because I, I personally think they're masking, they're disguising the blues with other types of music like rock and roll. And they call, they like to call rock and roll blues nowadays. It's a double-edged sword. I hope that the more time that goes by, there will be younger guys like, like me who are playing blues or bluesier type of music then the guys who want to play the rock and roll kind of thing, because at the end of the day, I think the blues industry could be hurting itself right now. And, and we definitely need to keep it alive for future generations, don't we? As the old legends do start to die out. Major League Blues, as I said, is the name of that second album that we're talking about today. And it comprises eight original songs that you've written and two classic tunes by some of the masters of the Chicago blues in Magic Sam and Eddie Taylor. Walk us through why you chose those two tracks. Well, I always loved the song Bad Boy and there are so many versions of that song out there. Even recently, I heard Eric Clapton's new album has a new version of Bad Boys. If somebody like Eric Clapton in his 70s is still taking one of those old Chicago blues standard and re-recording it, it's because the song is good. I'm just a bad boy Long, long way from home I'm just a bad boy
American only has two cover songs. It's it's Bad Boy, and the other one is a Magic Sam song. So we picked those two songs because they pretty much told me like, why don't you just pick a couple of songs that are very traditional of the Chicago blues history? So I did. I bet you have to pinch yourself sometimes to see how far you've come, yeah? Sometimes I have to. It's really unbelievable. Jose, of the eight original tracks that you've written, which one should we go out on? I like them all. I really do. And not because they're my songs, but I think it's it, this album is a very good mixture of blues and blues soul. But if I had to pick one, it would have to be a song called Here in the Delta. Tell us about it. Most of the album, actually, those uh, other eight songs I wrote um, while on a trip to the Mississippi a couple years ago. I stayed at an old wooden shack for a week and I wrote this record there. Just me by myself in this old wooden cabin and behind the cabin there was a swamp. And the vibe that you could feel from this place, from the dirt, the earth, the trees, uh, just the heat of Mississippi in the summertime, just inspired me a lot. And this song here in the Delta talks about that experience. with us today. It's been a pleasure to meet you and I know we're going to be hearing a lot more about you as the years roll on. You're just getting started and you're off with a really big bang. Thank you, Sandy. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed meeting Jose. I think he's pretty awesome. Now, don't go anywhere. My next guest is an absolute legend. This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Good to hear. Lots more in store. Call me one hit wonder. Curse me to the day I die. One hit wonder. I hit the blunt and just wonder. Now, I'm not really sure whether to call my next guest a one hit wonder or not. She certainly's only ever had one number one hit, and it's the song that everyone knows her for. Today, Tina Charles lives in the rural village of Catrum in the UK, where she lives a very modest life, tending to her dogs, chickens, and even to a skulk of foxes who visit her regularly. I'll let her fill you in. Hello, Tina Charles. How are you? Hello, Sandy. Are you still making music today? Um, No, well, because of the lockdown, everything just went very quiet, and I was going to do a single with Linda Lewis, and of course that got put on hold. Are you two friends? Is that how that's come about? Oh, we've been friends since we were, oh, I was 16 and she was about 20, I think. Talking about you as a 14-year-old, you certainly started making music at a tender age, didn't you? Uh, yeah, I was very young. My first single was 16, I think I was. But I was working at 13 uh, in Chimpan Alley doing demos. Really? You always knew that you wanted to be a singer? Yeah, my Daddy, bless him, took me up to London to a singing teacher and he said, um, could you help her? And he just said, I can't take your money because she's a natural. From then on, I went sort of, oh, the two Ronnies I think I did when I was 17. Tina, I believe that you recorded your very first solo single in 1969 with the then unknown Elton John playing piano for you. No, that's actually wrong. <laughs> what happened, I did a song 
called Good To Be Alive and he actually was the backing singer and you can hear him. Oh, it's good to be alive this sunny morning And to see the world so fine Yes, it's good to stretch your arms and read the morning And to know that you are mine How did that come about? I did meet him in Timpan Alley because I remember when he came in and he bought some new crocodile shoes and I just knew him as Reg. And he, he was very shy and retiring. Nothing like what you see now. But whoever booked him on the session, he was actually not famous then. He was actually uh, just a session singer. Right. Were you surprised when he, when he started to make it big? <sighs> not really, I suppose. He was always very talented. Probably a bit troubled when he was younger, because he certainly wasn't flamboyant or anything, but I never saw him again, actually, after that. We, our paths, funnily enough, never crossed. That's quite amazing in itself, isn't it? Well, usually you do. You meet people all the time that smoky. You know, we used to do the same t- ABBA. We used to do the same TV shows, and we'd go for a drink afterwards. Now, I know that you, you spoke about your friend Linda Lewis. I believe that she and you... Um, in 1975, actually backed Steve Harley and Cockney Rebel on that incredible song, Make Me Smile. Yes, we did. Come up and see me, Make Me Smile, which is used in this country in a Viagra, but <laughs> which is kind of weird. <laughs> is it? It is quite funny. That's hilarious. Is, is that current? Uh, it's current, yes. It's quite funny because there's a couple, you know, sort of, obviously he's all happy and everything and they come up and then he comes up Viagra. The English humour. You've done it all You've broken every code Upon the rebel To the thought You spoke the game No matter what you say But only metal Whatever big demand as a session singer those days, weren't you? I was. I, well, that's how I earned my living. And sometimes I wish I'd have stayed a session singer because the hard work that was involved, it was almost everybody wanted a piece of you. And, you know, you were sort of every country and, oh, you've got to come over to Brazil, you've got to come over. And it was lovely, but it was such hard work. Living at airports, out of suitcase, oh, it just, you know, in the end, you just want a weekend or I just want a day off to myself. Not quite as glamorous as what it appears from the outside. No, certainly not. And that first number one song, which is that you're talking about? I Love to Love. Can you tell us how that came about? Yes, it's funny. I'm 68 years of age now. Your mind goes a little bit a bit crazy. Yeah, I think we can all relate to that. I know. You just think, oh, God, that was so many years ago. I mean, I go in the fridge and think, what am I going in the fridge for? No, I think it was Bidu. Bidu's my producer. He produced Kung Fu Fighting. For Carl Douglas. Right. And Bidu and I did kind of about three before I Love to Love under different names, like the play themes. Then we did You Set My Heart on Fire, which was an underground hit in sort of everywhere in America and everywhere. And I went around the whole country with Bidu in, in the fire engine. It did actually quite well, but it didn't chart.
I think because I've been to all the radio stations in this um, fire engine, it gave good stead. So when I Love to Love came out, all the DJs played it. And in fact, it was the B-side called Disco Fever that was the A-side. And I Love to Love was the B-side. And one of the DJs flipped it. And of course, from then, every, everyone flipped it. And then that became the A-side. Ah, oh, and that was, the, that was your first number one? It was my only number one. Yeah. <laughs> Tina Charles, what was it like when you hit number one? It was a roller coaster because at the time I was living in London with Trevor Hall. You know, he went on to do, in fact, I did the original Ow, 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 on Video Killed the Radio Star. I heard you on the wireless back in 52, lying awake intently tuning in on you. If I was young, it didn't stop you coming through. Did all the I I invented all those little bits, the, you know the, the I, I said it was like a Woody Woodpecker, and he met somebody. Our relationship went sour, and he took it to Island Records and got a deal behind you know my back. I didn't know anything about it, and I was pushed out. It all got a bit nasty. Ah, oh. with hindsight, I probably could have sued him because I composed it, you know. But then of course I did, had a hit with I'm on Fire with Five Thousand Volts. I suppose, wasn't it? It certainly was. Yeah, we got a good workout on the dance floor with that one. <laughs> it's a great track. I did great vocal first take. I did it. And I just think, well, that will go down in history. So you were out there touring both of those two songs. And Tina Charles, the name was huge, not only in Europe, but here in Australia and in the US. What were those days like for you? I mean, it was great. I had a chance to go to Australia and I, I just miss my son. <laughs> You know, it was, I'd only given birth to Max probably two years before, so he was just growing up. And I just thought, oh, I've been away already for two weeks and I can't, I just wanted to go home. I said, no, I'm going home. It must have been really difficult to try and, and run a successful career at the time and be a mother. I mean, it's hard to balance it at the best of times, but I can imagine much more so when your work demands of you that you're away for long periods of time. 
Well, exactly. He was born, you see, in 77. So it was a year sort of after my hit. So he was one when I was still being in huge demand. And mind you, a funny story, I will say, is when I, this is going back to how things were. You know how things are now, Sandy, where people have their pregnancy bump on the front of magazines and they don't care. When I did my video for Rendezvous, I was pregnant and it showed. So what they did, they said, we're going to do a video, CBS, this is the record company, in Harrods. But what you'll have to do is put a box in front of you as if you bought something to cover it up. And every time I look at that video, that was my husband, actually, in the video with me, who's Max's father. And I just laugh because I think, look at the way we are now or the way people are. And yet I wasn't even allowed to show the bump. Oh, we have to retake that because we could see. And I'm thinking, my God, times were different then. It's a very different world that we live in. You had more hits, though. You, you went on did Dance, Little Lady Dance. That's right. I think I'll go with him, Music Takes Me, Rendezvous, Love Me Like a Lover. There was a few, never quite as big. You actually brought that back, did a 1986 remix of it? You mean the French version with the get, get, get down, with the bit on the front of get, 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 get down, get, get, and everybody was just singing that. And it got to number one in France, and it was huge. I mean, I bought a Porsche just going over there and doing gigs every weekend. It was great. Absolutely fantastic. success change your life, Tina Charles? Well, I bought a house, um, which I'm still in, so I was very sensible with money. I'm not a stupid person that goes out and buys designer label. You know, I'm, I was always grounded. I'm not wealthy, but I've got enough just for myself, my dogs, my foxes. That's all I want from life. Do you still get recognised and, and uh, ask for autographs when you head out? Not in catering because I think everybody knows me. I've been here so long that in the early days I did, but now, of course, people probably don't remember me. They know the song, funnily enough. They know the song because it's been, it does get played here. But, you know, if you say to someone, oh, you know, I'm Tina Chart, well, I, I don't normally say that. You know, they'll go, oh, oh, I remember you. And then sometimes you'll get, I've got no idea. And I'll go, I love, and they'll go, oh, I know that song. How does it feel for you to be known for that one big song? I think it's great, actually, to be honest, because it's a legacy that you leave. And it's nice to know that when you do go, at least you can think, well, people will still be playing that song. It's lovely to have that. Charles, really lovely meeting you. Thanks, Tina. And you too. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Bye. I'm hoping it won't be too long before we hear some new music from Tina Charles. She's still got a great voice. Saturday night at the movies Who cares what picture you see When you're hugging with your baby In the last row Movie and streaming time again with media critic Alan Craig. Hi, Alan. Hi, Sandy. Hi, everyone. A terrific French movie this week. Tell us what you thought. Yeah, an interesting little film. It was called The Kitchen Brigade, and it was a film about a group of refugees and uh, helping them avoid deportation. It took a very sympathetic view of them. Yeah, we went along not expecting very much from it and were pleasantly surprised. The Kitchen Brigade was actually the follow-up to a movie called Invisibles, which was a comedy drama that went really well at the box office. This one, I reckon, is going to do just as well, if not better. Yeah, the director's called Louis-Julien Petit, and he's already gaining quite a reputation for making these socially conscious films. This one is a little bit even deeper. It's the story of a 40-year-old sous chef who 
dreams of opening her own restaurant. And when that doesn't work out, she ends up being a cook in a migrant hostel. But she tackles the fate by helping these young guys to learn how to cook. And her performance is quite outstanding. Yeah, I agree. And also a few newcomers, notably social media star with more than 750,000 followers on Instagram. That's not bad. Yes. The real star of this film are the kids. I wonder if uh, we were to tackle such uh, contentious issues in this warm way here, if it would be as well received given the anti-woke brigade. Hmm. Well, you certainly have a lot of empathy for the fate of these guys who were interned in the hostel. It's a lovely little movie. You do come away feeling really nice and warm and fuzzy, and that's always a good thing. And it's a reminder that there is something that is also very true. Refugees, whatever you think of them, are people too. It's called The Kitchen Brigade. It's in cinemas now. Thanks for your time today, Alan. Thank you, Sandy. Thanks, everyone. Up next, you'll meet the man behind some terrific songs like this one. Probably never heard his name. This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Thanks again for being here. This is the segment that belongs to you, the one where you get to tell me the artist you'd like to hear from. And this week, Aby from the Melbourne suburb of Caulfield has reached out to see if I could track down Tony Burrows for him. Who, I asked? Tony Burrows, the man behind groups like the Ivy League, Flowerpot Men, Edison Lighthouse, the Pipkins, Brotherhood of Man, and a whole lot more. Turns out the man of a thousand voices, Tony Burrows, is now 83 years old and has never been allowed to make music under his own name. I was always a group. Edison Lighthouse, the, the big one, I tried to buy myself out of the contract. Because I said, I don't want to be another group. I've been a group all my life. And Tony McCauley said, no, no, it's got to be a group record. I don't actually ever want to perform live. And I never did. I believe that Love Grows by Edison Lighthouse has been watched more than two billion times on TikTok. And it's still trending globally. That's ridiculous. I made that record 53 years ago. What do you think its resurgence is due to? It was one person liked the lyrics and reacted to it. I mean, it's crazy. (laughs) I, I believe it's actually four billion now. made up. It should have been a disturbed lighthouse and uh, somebody mispronounced it on the record label and it ended up as Edison Lighthouse. We thought Edison Lighthouse You're was not a- old enough, Sandy. <laughs> You're not old enough. Oh, yes, I am. <laughs> well, we thought it was a regular band also, but it was a group of studio musicians with you at the head that were under yeah. the umbrella of this name, right? That's absolutely right, yeah. Uh, I believe the actual group were called Greenfield Hammer and they came from Slough in Middlesex. Who knew? So was it it kept a secret at the time? No, they actually went out and worked live as Edison Lighthouse, but I was never a part of it. 
So Tony Burroughs, though you never charted a record under your own name, you do hold the unusual honour of having four records in the British Top 10 all at once, all under different names. Tell us a little bit about that. I worked with the Ivy League and also the Firebox Band. Uh, let's go to San Francisco. The Far Pop Men was actually the first hit by the White Plains, okay? Because, very confusing. Uh, very incestuous as well. The record manager said, I've got all these records recorded, but I haven't got a group. He said, well, can I release them under a different name? And that was the first record was Baby Loves Loving by the White Plains. And so that's what they released and lo and behold it was a hit so i had to go back in you know and and start recording as a white plate that starts my baby love my baby loves love and she's got what it takes and she knows how to use it my baby love my baby loves love and she's got what it takes and she knows how to the first song that you'd released as White Plains and yes. it went to the top 10. There was something about you. It didn't matter what you recorded. It was a smash hit. I don't know why. So the four that you had in the in the British top 10 all at once was Love Grows, My Baby yeah. Loves Lovin', that yeah. crazy song Gimme That Ding that you recorded <laughs> under the name of the Pipkins. It was uh, Freddie and the Dreamers album. I was doing backing vocals with Roger Greenaway and it was the only song that Freddie didn't do. It was actually two takes. I had a really rough throat and so I did the that's right, that's right, and Jan Blue. It was just crazy, and Roger did the dialogue. Well, that's right, that's right, I'm sad and blue, because I can't do the boogaloo. I'm lost, I'm lost, can't do my thing, and that's why I sing the gimme, 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 gimme. because they thought it was rude. Really? Yes. <laughs> and that, of course, made it a hit. That was the third song that you had on the charts at that time. And, of course, the final one was uh, Brotherhood of Man's United We Stand, yeah. which was a huge hit. That song, I guess, had the most meaning in, in lyrically, didn't it? Yes, it did. The other ones were fun, and I think, especially in this dreadful time, United We Stand is a very pertinent Remark. I agree. There's nowhere in the world that I would rather be than with you, my love. And there's nothing in the world that I would rather see 
Roger Greenaway again, and Roger Greenaway creeps up all the time. So I did very, very few live appearances. So there was a bit of an aura of mystery about you. Well, yes, that's a very nice way of putting it, but actually they didn't know who I was. <laughs> <laughs> Which meant that you could walk down the street and, and not be recognised. Oh, yes, I could. And, and I didn't have to put up with all the rest of the rubbish, yes. I remember an occasion, I used to travel on the tube. I unfortunately got in a carriage with some sort of 14, 15-year-old girls, uh, loading. And I think I know who that is. I think I know who that is. And I had to get off a tube in the next station and run away. <laughs> you were scared of that. That was the only time it really Yeah. What do you think they might have done to you if you'd stayed on the track? I don't know. I don't know <laughs> what they have done. But, uh, I had to run away. I know that. <laughs> Sandy, it's been a wonderful experience. I've never had a proper job. I started singing at 16. We worked with the Beatles, just one permanent screen from the start uh, for the next two hours. Uh, they actually paid us extra money to go on immediately before the Beatles because nobody heard anything. And we could talk amongst ourselves and, you know, I mean, it was just crazy. It's really very funny. Of those eight hits that you had, we've talked about Let's go to San Francisco. We've talked about the Pipkins and Gimme That Ding, which was very strange. We've talked about My Baby Loves Lovin' from White Plains. We've talked about United We Stand from The Brotherhood of Man and, of course, Love Grows from Edison Lighthouse. We haven't mentioned Melanie Makes Me Smile. Oh, yeah, I once did three different performances on uh, Top of the Pops and the producer came to me after the show and said, Tony, I'm sorry, you're not going to be able to be used again. And I said, excuse me, you asked me to do the show. And he said, I'm sorry, the word has come down from the BBC, you're not to be used again. And I didn't get a play on the BBC for two years after that. Why? Don't ask me. I, I still know don't know. Because I suppose they thought it was some sort of con. Oh, you naughty boy. I know. Thrown out of the BBC. How and awful. After Edison Lighthouse, Melanie Makes Me Smile was, was a minor hit in America but probably on the back of, of the Edison Lighthouse one. Yeah. And did you recorded Melanie Makes Me Smile under your own name? Yes, I did. Good luck. One of the few. <laughs> <laughs> the last song put out through the 70s was Beach Baby. So there are only three of the songs on the original recording. We overdubbed all sorts of things and it was a hit all over the world. Yeah. But Brian Wilson was played uh, a blind date in Australia. And he said, who is this? Absolutely no idea who it is, but it's definitely West Coast America. And that's why we did it. It was a tribute to the Beach Boys. Ooh, I never thought that it would end. Ooh, 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 
that you had a hit with in 1975. What happened then? Why did it all come to a, a sudden stop at that point? Are you tell me, Sandy. I've absolutely no idea. I think the music moved on, didn't it? That's when you started getting more into commercials. You sung that Coca-Cola ad that was yeah, yeah. huge right around the world. I'm just lucky. It worked out. So the years you've been travelling to America and doing live performances, how are you received there? Very well, to be quite honest. Tony Burrows, you also did a whole lot in the studio that we haven't even touched on. You did backup vocals for people like Elton John and Rod Stewart too, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, I did. And Tom and Cliff. Who was your favourite to work with and which was the favourite song? I think it's Elton John. Why? I worked live with Elton. And it's your voice we hear on Tiny Dancer. Yes, it is. Do you think the BBC would have you back on a television show now? I'm not sure they would now. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I hope so. Is, is your voice still as strong as it ever was? She ain't got no money, of course. It's kind of funny. Her hair is kind of wild and free. Oh, love rose where my rosemary goes. And nobody knows I'd be. It's still there. Tony Burrows, thank you so very, very much for your time. What a pleasure to chat with you. Sandy, it's been my pleasure, I can assure you. Thank you. What a sweetheart. Thanks for asking me to find Tony Burrows, AB. And if you've got a favourite that you'd like to hear from, do the same. Get in touch with me through the website at breathoffreshair.com.au and I'll do my very best to bring that person onto the show. Time for me to get going now. I hope you've enjoyed what you've heard today and will keep me company again same time next week. Take care and have fun in the meantime, won't you? I'll see you then. It's a beautiful day. You've been listening to A Breath of Fresh Air with Sandy Kay. Beautiful day. Oh, baby, any day that you're gone away. It's a beautiful day.